0: Welcome back, everybody, to episode nine of Driving the Deal. I'm Brian Fortune with Farragut Square Group. Here in crime, who does these with me? Chris Whirling is out on vacation this week, but for this special episode, I will be joined by Farragut Square's own L. Kalish. So, welcome, L, to our questioning today. And we have a great guest this week because we'll be talking about digital technology, which is a, a big focus in the deal market these days, and not just digital technology broadly, but platform uh, innovation. So our guest today is Swati Survey. She is currently the head of LightSprite, which we're going to let her tell you a little bit more about.
1: We have built a clinically validated mental health video game, Cinesprite, that is one of the first video game to win a U.S. Surgeon General
0: Award. But she has a long history of working in digital health and been pursuing innovation at a number of different companies, including working with Microsoft or Nike and insurers such as Blue Cross, and elsewhere. Swati, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thank you. It is an honor and pleasure to be here today. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, excellent. Why don't we just kick off with upfront, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing at LightSprite and how does it work?
1: Absolutely. What LightSprite is, is we've built a, what is called a digital therapeutic gaming platform. Our data that we collect off of this platform um, is used to improve clinical outcomes. Our data is collected through the clinically validated games that we built. And then the data itself is used, employers, providers, and payers to improve the employee, patient, and member experience. And so we've been working over the last several years clinically validating um, our mental health video games, the first one to win a U.S. Surgeon General Award. And for all our work, um, to date, we've won over 30 Global Health Innovation, Innovation
0: Awards. That's excellent. So walk us through a little bit about kind of the, the subject matter of, of like, what is a digital therapeutic and how does it work with, with the patients or, or the providers?
1: Sure. The the notion or concept of a digital therapeutic is, I guess, it, it's been coined fairly recently. Like when I say fairly recently, it's in the last four or five years, and it's defined if you look at the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, if you go to their website, they define it as as a medical intervention that's delivered directly to patients using evidence based and clinically evaluated software to treat, manage, and prevent a broad spectrum of diseases and disorders. What's kind of funny is I launched LightSprite in 2013, and in some of my early pitches, I had always talked about software, or in our case, you know, games being prescribed by physicians. And this definition came into vogue the last four to five years, I suppose. (laughs) It's it's been interesting to see how there's now a lot of activity addressing a range of chronic issues with software-based solutions.
2: Something we think we've seen mental health and telehealth in general truly come to the forefront through the COVID-19 pandemic. You were talking about how LightSprite was created in 2013. So how have you seen the evolution of the digital technology and digital therapeutic space over that set of years, but especially within the COVID-19 pandemic. And how is your platform and game different from, say, the majority of other digital health platforms that you've seen enter the space since COVID?
1: Yeah. So pre-COVID, I think just across the board, mental health was consistently underserved, right? There was a lot of stigma associated with it and it was always considered niche, right? And what the pandemic did is made mental health a concern for everybody. It's on the top of their mind because of all the challenges, right? Lockdowns, virus is not consistent in how it it manifests with people. There's some people, even after vaccination, there's multiple people getting reinfected. Work has been disrupted, right? So all of these things, and then you've got ongoing social unrest and now political instability, all of these things are creating what the World Health Organization has termed a a, a parallel pandemic. So I've said, you know, you're going to fit into three buckets. You've had an issue, you're going through an issue, or you're going to be going through an issue. Like there's no going around it. Like (laughs) you're going to fit in one of those three buckets. And because of that, you're seeing that explosion of demand that people have heard about. And and the thing is, getting to where you're seeing a lot of the current health solutions, a lot of them are still basically what they're doing is digitizing or adding a technology layer to enable an old care model or a traditional care model, I should say, which is you see a clinician or a provider for therapy. There aren't that many self-help tools. There's such a demand and such a shortage that that model just, you're never going to be able to hire the number of therapists you need to meet the demand. And let alone, you know, does it meet insurance and billing and all the other complexities. So a lot of what you're seeing in terms of the proliferation of You know, the explosion around these mental health technologies is really around older like traditional care models, which are just not scalable. You're also seeing some, even the text-based therapies, right? You're still having a provider on the back end. There are some AI-based technologies. Some of them are truly AI. You know, I was working with AI at Microsoft in 2010. A lot of them are lookup tables, right? They're not even really truly AI. So one of the things I see is there's a lot of buzz and a lot of people using terms over promising on what they're trying to do, because they've got to get valuation and they've got to get customers excited and all that other stuff. So I see a lot of traditional models getting funded. I see a lot of even text-based tools, not necessarily what I, as an engineer, I'm an engineer by training. Um, I wouldn't call them what they would. They are they're claiming to be just a lot of people trying to make claims on outcomes. And then when you kind of scale it, you know, you you do a little bit of a deeper dive. There's not much there. Another thing I'm seeing in terms of the industry is there is a maturation and a better sophistication of the buyer as well. I still see that if an app is popular. Popularity means that it must be working. And I think people are realizing that that's not necessarily the case. Just because an app is popular doesn't necessarily mean it's going to drive the impact that you want. I'm seeing a lot more individuals, employers, or even payers. Payers and providers have always asked for outcomes. But now you're seeing the employers looking for that because they're looking for solutions that go beyond general wellness and well-being. Because The productivity hit due to mental health issues is so, so great. Our clinical results result in a person being active two more days each week. And some more recent internal clinical findings are showing that the group that we're able to reach are the ones that traditional approaches, they will not respond like therapy. And those are the individuals with moderate to severe anxiety and depression levels. And lastly, the other thing you're seeing in the space, or two things actually, is there's a huge proliferation of micro segmentation. So now you have therapists that handle people of color, and then there's therapy services that will connect you for people of color that are LGBTQ, mental health, mothers pre delivery and post delivery, right? So you're seeing this, like, this micro segmentation at a certain level, but it's still the same old care model which is put somebody in front of a therapist and that model also by the way doesn't make mental health accessible for workers that don't that are third shift or second shift where their availability isn't going to overlap with when a therapist is right or even organizations that are looking to provide solutions nationally or even internationally yeah, so Swati, with that
2: being said,
1: how did you end up in the digital therapeutic
2: space? What brought you to being the CEO of LightSpray and bringing it to all of the success that it's had today?
1: Brian alluded to this a little bit. You know, I, I basically spent my career looking at how technology can improve or empower improve healthcare. And the way I've been thinking about it is how can you use technology to help people or patients improve health for themselves? We all and I've had that interest from a very, very, you know, when I first started my career. So um, I started it in, in upstate New York working at Eastman Kodak and equivalent of an entrepreneur in residence. And I'll really date myself, but My exposure to what we call today as digital health was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I was looking at, you know, sensors that would remotely monitor blood pressure or vital signs. I was looking at the application of, of video technologies in the hospital and how you could bring patients together, even technologies even back then that could help reduce stress as well. So, I started my work in wearables back at that point. And so it's been a running theme in most of the work I've done and I have been focused primarily on on building solution. Also, for those of you who might recall what was going on in healthcare around that time period a lot of the technology was focused on the enterprise so it was really health systems focused it was very med device there weren't really tools that people could you know use on their own i mean the the best that you had at that point were you know, uh, pedometers and heart rate monitors. um, And those two were very, very clunky and hard to use. And, you know, through all of these experiences, through Kodak, through Nike, through Microsoft, through Primera, and even T-Mobile, I was doing mobile healthcare. What I kept coming back to and seeing is that it's really not a technology problem, but it's really about creating tools and solutions that can motivate people like individual motivation was really the heart the key point of that and then if you look at games and how they can incentivize and drive behavior change that was really um, intriguing for me, and I started researching this area around 2010, 2011. And through my research, I found there was at least 40 peer-reviewed journal papers at that time that were showing that presenting interventions or presenting coping skills or through a game format was very effective in reducing health outcomes. But I, I wasn't really seeing a lot of commercialization efforts, and so that's why. I launched Lightsprite because I felt like there was a market opportunity um, at that point. Because there was also a convergence between having technology platforms that were very affordable in the form of mobile, to um, an interest in the consumers of these types of solutions. But equally importantly, from health economics perspective, or, or that case, you were beginning to see movement within the healthcare sector of adoption of these types of solutions to help with member engagement, to help with provider improving outcomes um, with the impending ACA. And so there were a variety of trends and I said, okay, this is a a good time to, to launch the company.
2: And so Light Sprite is focused on mental health, and it seems to be a platform that is at the intersection between mobile gaming and a digital therapeutic. So can you tell us a little bit more about how your platform works and operates, and then why eventually you landed on gaming as the best tool to help people go through their mental health care?
1: Yeah, so so the platform itself, the way it works is the, the mobile games that we build are designed for specific specific conditions. And so in the case of mental health, we built a game that helps people manage. And it's they're designed as self-help tools. But the power of the platform is that we have the ability to integrate into clinical care setting. And then there's a data that the games actually collect. And there's quite a bit of information from freeform text to standardized assessment scores to general usage that we can provide back to the provider, which helps them enable Monitoring. And because of this capability and, and the fact that we can sp- span that care continuum, we have validated reimbursement in for care settings, which is really important or any intervention that considers itself a, a healthcare intervention is that ability to fit into the payment models. It can be deployed in a range of scenarios. And then in terms of why we chose gaming, if you look at demographically, especially in the US, that's a generally accepted form of entertainment. Talking about healthcare, it's so, you know, we've heard that phrase, "beating people where they are. That means being on platforms and providing experiences that they're accustomed to and familiar with. Especially if you want to drive behavior change, it needs to be something that they're going to feel is reachable, achievable, and and consume that information or, or drive that behavior change in a way that they're used to. Believe it or not, as I mentioned, Gaming is a very common form of entertainment, and even more so during after the pandemic. The average gamer, according to the Electronic Software Association and AARP, is a woman in her mid-30s to late 40s. That's who the gamer is today. Over nearly half of people over 50 play video games once a week. Games are very popular with kids and youth, but if you think about it, the kids who grew up playing Donkey Kong and Frogger and Pac Man and all those games—they're 50 now or over 50. And in fact, revenue-wise, games make more revenue than motion picture movies. And that's why we picked games. It's commonly accessible. It's understood. It's it's meeting people where they are. Games allow you to be irreverent. It allows you to be fun. It allows you to address emotional needs in a way that other apps are just not going to be able to becomes interactive rather than instructionally driven or very task-oriented. And most of the other digitally-based solutions are all about consuming content. Did you read this? Did you watch this video? Did you click on this button? Did you fill out this survey? Which... At the end of the day, it doesn't really serve the patient necessarily, and it doesn't really help them, which is also another thing games do very well. They do very well with teaching because they're an interactive medium.
0: You mentioned Donkey Kong, so sadly Swati is, is dating me. <laughs> Oh, those stand-up console games. Let's talk about what what you're doing right now, though, in terms of, you know, you mentioned behavior modification. So, and we also talked a little bit about kind of the evolution of digital health. When you first started this, like we were really on the beginning cusp of it because that was when Congress first acquired all physician practices to migrate all their patient records to digital for that. It was like data analysis outside of, say, the hospital itself was quite challenging. The data was all on paper. So, you know, step one was go digital. And then and then, obviously kind of the next phase of that was, was kind of B2B communication, coordination between platforms and whatnot. But now this new phase, as you mentioned, we're trying to go beyond even data collection to, to influence behavior. So I, I'm really fascinated in the behavioral space and what does that mean in practical terms? Share with us sort of what playing this particular game would be. Be trying to achieve from, say, providers' preference or the patient. You
1: alluded to around the fact that there's a lot of data collection, but providers are swimming in a lot of data. And and so collecting it and presenting it is not really the key value. The key value is providing relevant information or using. Right. The type of information we collect to create predictive models, right? But but those models and the type of data are only as good as the the ability to collect that information and uh, the ability to establish trust and provide true utility to the end user, right? Then your, your backend data will only be as good as as the product's ability to to engender that trust and providing that true usefulness. With CineSprite, you know you'll see some of those principles that I just talked about previously. So the way the game is built is it's a player-driven world exploration game. So choose your own adventure, more more aptly called. We have uh, from a patient, ex- what we're doing is we're presenting a range of skills that are evidence-based and have been proven to be effective coping strategies and skills to learn. And there's also mindfulness strategy. There's journaling, there's meditation, there's diaphragmatic breathing, um, there's a gratitude experience. And so these experiences are what we call mini games or modules. So you kind of go to each mini game or module and you practice those skills. As you're doing that, you're helping the protagonist of the game, Socks the Fox, become a Zen master. And you're doing helping Socks become a Zen master by learning those those evidence-based techniques. And Socks is also a very important part of that experience because... You know, I talked about addressing emotional needs and quite often with mental health, there's a lot of sense of people are feeling overwhelmed, they feel isolated, they feel alone, they don't feel like they have any real emotional support. And that's what Sox is for our players. Sox has been called uh, a therapeutic Sherpa. And and, and because of that, we've been used in, in a variety of settings, including when people have had panic attacks we are such a trusted tool during critical moments of ind- for for individuals we get very high quality data to the provider or the payer it helps them understand mood it helps them understand what the issues are allows them to stay better connected in some cases with certain providers they prescribe journaling or they'll recommend it so it allows them to check in to see if in fact the user has completed the homework assignments or is actually using the app as they've been prescribed or if, what are some new skills that, that they might be even picking up on their own? We had one clinic in Arizona we were working with. It was a Medicaid group of patients. What was really interesting is that they were heavy journaling users. That's what the clinicians would tell them. But when we gave them the usage on the other modules were like, we were like, Hey, we we're, were noticing a lot of people doing meditations, but they're not completing. And that went to, well, gee, that's really interesting because we never talked to them about using meditation, but because it was presented along with other skills that they were already familiar with. And in a format that met them where they were, they were willing to try something that they probably would have never tried because of their own perceptions of what meditation is or isn't, or just the fact that they just never had been exposed to that concept.
0: Well, that's interesting. What are kind of the, the main different types of patient conditions that you're addressing with this type of therapeutic platform? You mentioned anxiety. That seems like a, a good one. Like what else?
1: Sure. So in a clinical setting, when we've been recommended or prescribed as some of the clinicians have described it we've worked with individuals with anxiety depression PTSD substance abuse bipolar and we've even worked with an SMI population we've been mainly working with adults we do see an uptake with children as young as four because they see their parents using it <laughs> and they're like well, what are you doing <laughs> and they're like well I'm playing this game you want to play and they're like yeah I want to play and so then it's it's kind of very funny because then the kids start learning you know medicine meditation and these other effective techniques. We have a little bit of art therapy in there as well. Um, And then they're learning self coping tools because they saw their parents doing it.
0: How do most patients get this? I mean, do you, have you guys had success in getting kind of like you get commercial referrals or, you know, the commercial plans just agree to cover this because patients get put onto it by the physician office?
1: The way we accessible is twofold. We have a social mission to make mental health access available to all. So we have a free version of the app that anybody can download on both the app and the Android and uh, iOS store. The app, is called Cinesprite. We've got that piece of it, but the main way is through their employer who will sign us up as a a part of their benefits package. Um, And that's a whole nother, like the value proposition for the employer's Pretty compelling, um, but we're also talking to payers, um, and we also have are talking to providers as well. Who uh, there are a lot of providers, you know, even those therapy groups or teletherapy organizations that are offering those services, they don't have digital tools, and they need to augment that to help scale their their own services because there are a lot of people who are considered subacute or that they can't reach for the reasons I mentioned where they won't engage in therapy. So they're looking for digital solutions. So we'll work with these enterprise organizations and then our services is offered to those members or employees.
2: Have you seen any hesitancy on the provider side in potentially prescribing your digital therapeutic? How have you been able to kind of increase that buy-in from providers who are potentially skeptical of getting involved in the digital space?
1: You know, it's really funny. When I first launched the company, I thought we would get a lot of resistance. Mind you, this is 2013. And and I thought our initial foray would be employers. But where we first started seeing adoption was the provider. Like, I was really surprised. I mean, they're always going to be every audience you'll certainly have individuals who are skeptical and and so on, right? But I was actually very surprised at the receptivity that we did get. Part of that was because we were clinically validating right away. Like we started collecting our evidence in 2013. And then we were using generally accepted screening tools like the GAD-7 and the PHQ-8. And then there were, at that time, we were collecting like five other screens. But the minute that the, that they heard that, oh, you're collecting that. and And then even as we started sharing very transparently, like what we're seeing with preliminary data, they got excited. And even within some of our early deployments, I think just the value of the tool and the fact that we had worked with clinicians directly to build the experience, they could see how their patients would benefit from learning, right? And and that was the other thing. We weren't making claims that we're gonna cure anything. While it's designed as a self-help tool, it's never designed to to replace the the therapy. We've always built this... As a adjunct, our tools or our games are adjuncts, and they're self-help tools. But the most powerful, or they realize their most value when it's integrated with getting care from a human being, right? But what we're trying to do is offload and make that experience for the individual to take care of their own health easier. And now we're talking to several of these digital mental health providers, and they're really excited about it. When I'm able to talk about our numbers, our retention, but the scores and showing them, they're like, oh, this is this is an actual intervention tool versus just a general wellness, well-being, and it'll you know, make someone feel good, just make them feel good, if you will.
2: Do you have any advice for those that are looking to invest into the digital technology space, whether that be acquiring a platform or potentially even creating their own?
1: Yeah, look at the evidence base. Always. Right. With these kinds of tools. And that's the, one of the things I was on a call earlier today and they talked about how and I'm sure a lot of the people on the call, even as investors, there's been a lot of hype with digital health and even there, there's more of a uh, digital health is a must have. But but the thing that is really important is what are the outcomes right and what what are you driving towards so that's that's definitely one thing if you're building a platform or you're building a solution if you're looking at being in the healthcare space really think about how are you going to provide that validation that's really important i would also argue like popularity doesn't necessarily mean it's it's going to to work and and just because someone something has outcomes also doesn't mean people will use it so like there's that dichotomy right it's a balance between you know i think it's a fair question like I think a lot of people use that as a proxy. Oh well, if it's popular, that must it means it must be working. And and that's a dangerous proxy to have. But also on the flip side, just because something has like thirty peer reviewed papers, what environment were they testing it in? That's the other thing. Outcomes and how were they delivered? For example, real world evidence for digital solutions is the way to go rather than RCTs. And that's what the National Science Foundation, that's what the NIH was saying. That's what the Kaiser Family Foundation was saying. Even way back. Back in 2008, right? Real world evidence. Privacy policies are another thing I would look at because nearly every single one of these digital health providers, they had massive privacy breaches or they were doing things with their data that was not in the best interest of the patient. So I'm sure you can do a Google search and find those. And then, you know, how is it built? Just get curious about how they built the product and what's gotten into the thinking and what has the team learned about how is their product used? I think that'll give you those kinds of insights, give you a real understanding of the value or the potential of a solution beyond you know the standard questions around revenue, customers, references, but understand the thinking and intellectual exercises that these folks had to go through to build the intervention. All
0: right, Swati, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great discussion. I hope everybody found it valuable. Thanks, Elle, for joining us. We'll have you back on again. And thanks, everybody, for listening. On deck, stay Stay tuned. We are having a variegate webinar focused on GI in the coming weeks. And we will also be revisiting our popular episode, The Banker's Corner, where we will review transactions in Q2 and look ahead to the back half of the year. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a great week and we will talk to you again on another episode of Driving the Deal. This materials for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott, is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.